Welcome to Old Books with Grace. I'm Dr. Grace Hammond, medievalist, writer, mother, and big fan of food. But I have good news for you today. Today, in the Lenten Seven Capital Vices and Their Remedies series, we're talking about gluttony and abstinence. And here's the good news. Enjoyment of food does not make you a glutton automatically. In fact, it could, just possibly, we shall see, make you the opposite of one, depending on the kind and manner of your enjoyment. This is getting to be a major theme of this series, but gluttony is, again, not quite what we've pigeonholed it into today. Being overweight can have very little to do with gluttony, and that's unfortunately what has been associated with it. Enjoying food is also not gluttony. People of all shapes and sizes can be gluttonous. Put out of your mind entirely as you listen to this episode. Any extra pound anxiety or anger or judgment about your body from yourself or others, because it's honestly not that helpful here. A 15th century book on discerning vices before confession guides us towards a better understanding of gluttony. The sin is not in the meat or drink, but in the appetite and the talent thereof. When thy delight is out of measure therein. Yet again, we meet a vice about the violation of measure, about healthy amounts of appreciation and practice, about good habits, in this case, around food. Gluttony consists in a reductive understanding of eating and drinking, shrinking food down to self-gratification and consumption, or lack thereof, rather than setting it in its rightful place as a social, spiritual, and bodily gift. Gluttony shows up in habits like this, according to medieval sources. Eating and drinking out of time, like, for instance, never fasting or eating out of boredom. Eating and drinking outrageously or without measure. Overeating, avoiding food when you're really hungry for reasons like saving money or losing weight. Eating greedily without manners. Eating only expensive food. Over pickiness or fastidiousness. And drinking to insensibility. It also includes food waste. It includes devouring what other people have worked hard for without appreciation or thought. And perhaps most interestingly of all, medieval people categorized gluttony alongside what they called sins of the tavern. Other parts of gluttony included swearing, backbiting, lust, fighting, and stealing. So gluttony is related to idle talk, as they called it, boasting, contempt, false modesty, flattery, perjury, chiding and striving, my favorite medieval word, murmuration, and blasphemy. This is an interesting list. We can see there's this really, really strong social element to discerning and characterizing gluttony. Bad table manners fall under gluttony. Why? From a very practical medieval perspective, Repetitive or extreme drunkenness leads to all these sins of the tongue listed above, making gluttony a direct cause. In a passage that made me chuckle, the penitential book Jacob's Well calls gluttony the gateway to the sins, which makes it sound kind of like how people used to talk about marijuana in the 1990s. 
Gluttony is the gateway drug to a lot of bad behavior. But we can think more holistically for a minute about this social element tied up with gluttony as well. Food is a gift from God. The pleasure we get from eating and drinking is also a gift. As usual, we can't take medieval sources just straight without thinking about them. Because in that list that I wrote above, that particular book included pleasure in eating as a very minor sin. Nothing that will get you sent straight to hell, but maybe will earn you a few more years in purgatory. Most of us don't really hold that today, and a lot of medieval people, like St. Thomas Aquinas, would not have either. He believed that food and the enjoyment of food was an important part of our embodied experience. One of my favorite questions to ask people in order to get to know them better is, what are some of the favorite meals you've had? Who were the people? What was the food? What did it taste like? Where did that meal take place? Think on that for a minute. It brings me joy to briefly think of mine, and even more joy when I really meditate on them. But here's a quick list of some of mine. 2005, California Pizza Kitchen, barbecue chicken salad, my high school friends driving ourselves on the first day of our senior year of high school, the first day of a year in which we had early release, eating lunch together. 2015, early morning, a hospital bed, my newborn in my mom's arms next to my dad and my husband, my favorite tea with cream and honey, and a scone with copious clotted cream. There's a lot more I could list for you. The scholar Robert Kruschwitz describes his journey with Lipton iced tea. A glass of iced tea tastes so good to him because, as he writes, it carries so much of my life. Human taste is not just based on the food in front of us. It is, quote, based on the integration of sense, circumstance, and activity pleasures. The foods we choose to eat and share with others can become, as Veronica Grimm observes, a gesture or language to communicate intentions, feelings, and attitudes. Food is part of remembrance, the building of social bonds. It can be an essential act of healing and loving. There's a reason why we take food to people who are grieving or recovering from surgery, It's an act of love and care to take cooking responsibilities off their plate. But food physically nourishes our bodies as well. And sometimes food can help in our spiritual healing through the times we share it together. There's a lot, of course, that could be said here about the Eucharist. God chooses to give himself to us in the shared act of eating. And this idea drives home the danger in ignoring the full range of nourishing our body and the good there, subordinating it to either pleasure or control or a strange mix of both. Krushwitz writes that the pleasures of eating can orient us to knowing and embracing the full good, that is, the good available to us when all things are duly considered. When we are gluttonous, However, they instead disable, distract, or disorient us in relation to the full good. 
Rebecca Conondike DeYoung also puts it well. Gluttony reduces human life to self-gratification. This made me think. If avarice, the vice we discussed last week, instrumentalizes and dehumanizes others, perhaps gluttony is instrumentalizing and dehumanizing your body. Boiling down all the complexity and gift of your body to material pleasure and gratification alone. In a twist of irony, gluttony actually takes the keen edge off the pleasure and dulls it down. If you're constantly worrying about calories and losing weight, the pleasure of eating with a friend is considerably diminished. If you're constantly devouring your food, eating quickly to get it down, you don't appreciate it. You can hardly taste it. Overeating destroys the lasting contentment of a delicious meal taken at the right time and place. And bad table manners, back to those. Perhaps you've been wondering when we would get to that. They're gluttonous because they subordinate one's appetite to caring. uh, They subordinate um, caring for others to one's appetite. And they destroy the moments of holistic togetherness that appreciating food can bring us. And in the end, indiscriminate devouring of food or overly fastidious eating habits end up in the same place. More and more hunger, less ability to be satisfied. The gifts of food and the cruelty of gluttony have a more practical edge as well. Gluttony includes wasteful practices towards food. Food is a finite resource, though it's easy to forget it if you're middle class or above. Though it may seem there are limitless Pringles and apple always available when you want it, if you're going to a grocery store, Being mindful of what we eat, where we buy it, and how reminds us that for much of the world today and nearly all of history, consuming food and acquiring food was very different. In the Middle Ages, for instance, a bad harvest had immediate impact. The plight of laborers was the plight of you, or your next-door neighbor, or your servants. And today we mask the plight of the farmer, the impact of the weather global warming, so on, in our complex global food systems. Yet these issues are still real. Food shortages and disastrous harvests still happen. Yet huge amounts of produce and food in general are thrown out all the time, here in America in particular, because they're not pretty enough to be sold in grocery stores. It makes sense that the ancient tradition recommends abstinence or fasting to combat the vice of gluttony. For those used to thinking about abstinence only in the context of American sex ed, abstinence, the word here means, in the words of the Summa Virtutum, the restraint of all illicit impulses, the medicine for diseases that come from excess. Abstinence becomes a fancier word for restraint. Some of this restraint is just very practical, very respectful of your bodily limitations. Restraining yourself when you want to sneakily take the biggest piece of cake for yourself rather than give it to your guest. Restraint when you want to eat another bowl of pasta because you made it and it was awesome, even though you fully know you're full and you would feel bad if you ate another. Restraint 
when you really want another glass of wine, but know it would push you from pleasantly buzzed to full-on drunk. Restraint consists in not centering your day and yourself around your meals, but including them in the big picture. Abstinence comes in other forms as well. A culture of avarice and gluttony have combined. The result is that our cheapest food is often the worst for us and for the creatures we live alongside. Our insatiable desires for cheap food here in America have led to some very unsustainable and unethical ways of treating both animals and the land. And as usual, the poor suffer the most. If we have the income, and I know this is a tricky matter, buying less of certain kinds of food, though we enjoy them, or spending a bit more to get less and purchasing from local farms with sustainable practices is another way of combating gluttony through practices of restraint. I've learned a lot about these ideas from two different friends who are farming and living close to the land. Bell Farm and Little Way Farm, if any of you are in North Carolina. Fasting, yes, literal fasting, is another obvious form of abstinence. But this fasting is not the same as fasting as part of a diet. Fasting in a diet may be necessary for medical reasons and be very good for your body. But fasting to combat gluttony and grow in virtue emerges from love. The influential Summa Virtutum argues that the withdrawal of food is not meritorious unless it's done voluntarily out of love. It even says that ideally, fasting should be accompanied by giving the food you would have consumed that day to the poor. It's an interesting idea. It also combats the uh, pernicious side effect of fasting for many people, medieval and modern When we participate in an ostentatiously difficult and notoriously holy practice like fasting, it can sometimes fuel our pride and our satisfaction with ourselves more than anything else, more than actually being a nice, excellent practice of um, discovering our limitations. The Summa Virtutum compares the temptation of fasting to the proud holy man of Luke 18, who thanks God he's not like that awful sinning tax collector he sees across the street. St. Bernard of Clairvaux writes of this man, He's giving thanks not because he's good, but because he's unique. This guy's not merely thankful for his gifts. He's comparing them to someone else's lack. He's better. Fasting can easily lead us to these spiritual temptations if it's not done in the right time and place. Fasting in a spirit of love can provide mental and spiritual clarity as it has for 2,000 years to some of the Christians who have practiced it. This includes a lot of different kinds of fasting. Not all of us can fully fast. For a lot of people, it just doesn't work with their health conditions or their current life. But fasting may be abstaining from chocolate and wine, skipping breakfast on Fridays, or a full-blown traditional fast. Abundance of food at all times, like abundance of money, can sometimes cause us to lose sight of our utter dependence on God. When we fast, voluntarily abstaining from eating for a period of time, we remember our limitations and our gifts. 
fasting disrupts us. It disrupts our usual habits. And as a disruption, it asks us, invites us to pay attention to ideas, feelings, or habits that we might ordinarily not notice. I'm going to confess here too, I'm really bad at fasting. Um, This was a tricky one for me to write because um, I've been trying to experiment with it a little more and see what happens and just open myself up to it. But it's hard. It's a hard thing to do. So if you're listening to this, feeling bad about yourself, don't feel bad about yourself. Um, As always, this is a good moment to remind you. If these practices are allowing you to create healthier habits around food holistically, both body and soul, that's wonderful. If they're not, move on. The church has built into itself an ancient tradition of feasts and fasts. We enjoy the body and the pleasures we have through our senses to celebrate the joys of salvation and the good news of the gospel and the wondrous exploits of the saints who have followed Jesus. We also fast to remember our limitations, to mourn with those to whom food has lost its savor through suffering or grief, to lament the past, or to focus on spiritual and temporal goods. The cycle of feasting and fasting is meant to undermine spiritual complacency in either hypocritical holiness, an unhealthy, unrelenting focus on either how bad or how good the world is, or a sort of toxic positivity, shallow rejoicing. So the two modes of feasting and fasting sharpen one another. DeYoung writes, Fasting heightens our appreciation for material goods while also keeping this appreciation in its place with room for the enjoyment of both simple bodily pleasures and spiritual goods. One of the meals I mentioned earlier my favorite meals, the scone with tea, tasted so very wonderful because I had been fasting (laughs) due to childbirth, of course, for the last 12 or 15 hours prior during my labor process. Fasting in whatever form you partake is similar to labor in some ways. It's something rather painful that you do out of love that generates life. In this case, a life more fully aware and in touch with the goodness of bodies and the goodness of creation. Perhaps acknowledging gluttony and practicing abstinence looks like this balance and awareness of feast and fast. It's feasting, drinking and eating really good things, savoring and recognizing them with gusto and joy for the gift they are with company you love. It's also abstaining at important times to sharpen your awareness of those gifts, to brighten your sense of your dependence on the gifts of God, and to acknowledge others in hard places and to be with them. Thanks for listening, friends. And next week is the final week of this Lenten series. I know um, I'm rejoicing that it's coming to an end. It was fascinating. I learned a lot, but I'm ready to take a little break um, to celebrate Easter and not discover each week what new vicious habits I labor under. (laughs) 
I'm really looking forward to Easter. So in this final week, next time, we'll consider lust and chastity. That will be quite interesting, I'm sure. If you'd like to see more of what I'm up to, sign up for my free Substack newsletter, Medievalish with Grace Hammond. Um, In that, I share uh, a little meditation each month, uh, along with a prayer from the past and what I've been reading and writing lately. I'm also around on Twitter at Grace Hammond PhD and Instagram at Old Books with Grace, and I'd love to hear from you. Um, I really would totally be interested in hearing your thoughts um, about any of these vices and virtues. Thanks again for listening.